All right, so we've been going through a sermon series in the book of Job, and, you know, as we've been doing this, of course, the book is uh, pretty difficult because it doesn't always have the easiest answers or the things that we would uh, like it to say necessarily. Um, But I, you know, I've decided to call this series The Chorus in the Chaos uh, because, you know, what a chorus in music does is it's something that's typically pretty repetitive. Multiple times you hear the chorus, but a chorus embodies the overall message of the psalm. So what that helps us to understand is that even in Job, there's not always the easiest answers or the most clear answers, but there are these reoccurring themes and ideas that if we can remember them, if we can kind of repeat them to ourselves, they will help us remember what's true even when life is really difficult. And you know some pretty popular um, choruses. I'm going to play just a few for you. So here's the first one. It just takes some time, so if you're a 90s kid like me, Jimmy Eat World. So very simple chorus. Or maybe if you're a little older, you'll remember this one. Some of you are seeing it along. You know that one. Um, and, and of course, it's not complete unless we play this one. That one's very simple, right? You can remember. It's catchy. It just gets in your head. Maybe your kids play that psalm a lot, and now it's stuck in your head. And maybe it'll be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. You're welcome. Uh, but these choruses, and there's you know, plenty of other ones, they're typically pretty simple, very catchy, repetitive, but that's kind of the point of the whole psalm. That's the message. And then you've got some verses to you know, kind of move things along a little bit. But the challenging part of Job especially is that, you know, we're getting close to the end here, and I have to break it to you. The ending of Job doesn't really have a very satisfying answer. Like, there's just not this really nice, clear, well, Job, here's why suffering happens. And Job goes, oh, that's great. That makes so much more sense. I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. There's not really a great answer. I mean, God doesn't even tell Job about him and Satan's conversation from the beginning of the book. He doesn't say, hey, Job. The reason all this happened is because Satan thought you were only serving me for blessing. Hey, you proved him wrong. Great job. Job never finds out about that. Um, And essentially what God sort of tells him is, I'm God and you're not. So just trust me. Which which is good, right? It's good to have the answer, trust God. That's good. But sometimes it's, it's hard to just take that as the answer and roll with it. And so I just want you to take just a minute here. And maybe, you know, in your notes or there in your bulletin or on your phone, I just want you to try to answer this question for yourself. What do you wish God would tell you about your suffering? 
Like if, if you could talk to God and he could tell you anything about your suffering, what, what do you wish he would tell you? I thought about that a little bit this week, like how I might answer that question. You know, and I thought um, it would be nice to get a promise like God gave Noah, like never again will any of my children suffer. Job, I'll put, you know, I'll put some kind of a symbol that no one's ever going to suffer ever again. That would be good. Or I would have liked it if God would have said, you can tap out whenever you want. The code word is pineapple. You say pineapple, I'll end it. If it gets too tough, if it gets too difficult, you run out of patience, I'll stop it. Or if God would have said, hey, in the future, um, I'm going to run the whole plan by you first, and you have to approve it. And if you don't like it, I won't do it. Right? I've, got, I've got to get your signature you know, in triplicate before we do anything. Or maybe if God gave some like really simple terms, like suffering can't extend past three weeks in time, and there must be three months in between every season of suffering for any one person, um, maybe that would help. Or maybe if God promised it, hey, when you suffer, I will answer all of your questions. I will just tell you exactly whatever you want me to tell you. I'll, I'll tell you everything. Or what if God, you know, kind of did like a little comparison. Like he said, well, here's your life if this thing never happened to you, and here's what your life would look like if this thing happened to you. And so he could like prove to you with hard data you'll actually be way better if this bad thing happens to you. Like, I know it'll be hard, but you'll be better in this other relationship, or you'll be better with this different job, or you'll learn some key lessons and go, okay, that makes sense. At least those answers would be more satisfying, at least for me. And maybe you have a kind of answer that you wish God would give. And uh, let me pull back the curtain just a little bit uh, on how sermon writing, sermon prep kind of goes. So typically, you know, in a sermon, you've got 20 to 30 minutes, give or take, unless I just keep talking and talking and talking or something. But the goal is, you know, to try to explain what God says about something, and then in a nice kind of neat package, give you a really clean, simple answer or point by the time we're done, and then uh, two or three things that you can start doing Monday morning. And that's great, and that's helpful, but sometimes Scripture is not that easy or simple or clean. Uh, I kind of call this the sitcom problem. I mean, you know, a sitcom in about 22 minutes with time for commercial breaks is going to take a, a real problem that a lot of us face and comically, you know, play it up with the characters and then resolve it in 22 minutes. But we all know a lot of times in life, our problems don't get resolved that fast. There's a lot of patience required. There's a lot of waiting. You're not even sure what the timetable is. Like, is this going to take a week? Is this going to go on for a month? Is this going to go on for a year? Five years? Ten years? How much will this impact and change my life? We just don't know. And so the challenge can be, sometimes the expectation is, what's, what's the easy answer? And I'm even sometimes trying to find that answer, but in Job, there, there isn't. Now, that doesn't mean the book doesn't help us. That doesn't mean the book doesn't have important meaning for us. It means it's just, it's not going to come to you in this night nice, tidy, little, simple sentence that you can take, and it's going to fix everything. There are things that are helpful to us that we can repeat to ourselves and that we can hold on to. And so there is sort of a, if you will, a chorus in the chaos. When life is hard, when there is suffering, there is something that God repeats. There are these themes in Job that continue to come up, and God is going to begin to speak, and he's going to kind of bring these up again. These things that Job and his friends have been arguing and fighting over, but God is now going to say, these are things that are true. They're always happening, always going on. So in Job chapter 38, this is where God begins to speak. In chapter 38 of Job. And so it says, 
Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. God said, Who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So Job throughout the book has been wanting and waiting to talk to God about his problems, to kind of put his own defense out there. And now he gets the chance. But at the end of Job, what we find is now that God finally comes and talks to Job, Job doesn't have a lot to say. He's pretty quiet. He's at a loss for words. In fact, he's taken aback. He kind of wants to pull his words back to himself. And when God speaks from a storm or a whirlwind, as it may be translated in your Bible, that is an imagery of, of God's anger. God is not happy with some of the things that Job and his friends have said, and so he's going to set the record straight. And so God's response in these couple of chapters goes from a 30,000-foot view of the universe all the way down to him talking about two very specific animals. So he starts big, and then he zooms in and gets really specific and small. And it's important to know in these chapters, and throughout the, not just Job, but the whole Old Testament, that God is not sort of laying out scientific truths necessarily. He is talking to Job as Job and as his friends understand the world. So there are some things that God says that that's how Job knew the world worked, but to us we'd go, well, that's, that's not exactly true. Like God's going to say he put the world on foundations. Well, we know the world does not literally sit on like these pillars and foundations, right? So don't get too caught up about trying to seek scientific answers here. This is God explaining so that Job would understand how God has designed the world to work a certain way. So, for example, the way that Job thought the world worked is you had the earth that kind of was laid out, and the sky was the floor of heaven. And there were doors in the sky, and so when the gods wanted it to rain or snow, they would pop these doors open and let everything out. So God says in 38, starting with verse 4, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Because Job's been talking like he, he knows how the world works. He gets it. So God questions him. Okay, well, if you understand how everything works, Job, tell me. How did, I, how did I set the earth? Tell me how I decided how big the earth should be, or how small it should be, or where there should be limits on things. Don't you know? Of course, Job has no idea. God goes on in verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? He goes on in chapter 39, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? In other words, God has designed the world to work a certain way. And he completely knows and has control over it. So when snow and rain and hail happen, he has created a system and a cycle for how animals give birth and when that happens and how that happens and how everything works together and is sustainable. And of course... Job has no answers for any of these things. And that's kind of the point. Job really has actual no idea how these things work. He doesn't understand how they're interconnected. He doesn't understand how changing one little thing over here will impact everything else over there. He just doesn't get it. So, uh, I don't know if you've seen, there's a 
TV show called Young Sheldon, which is a spinoff of another TV show that was really popular called The Big Bang Theory. And it follows just one character named Sheldon as he's a younger kid and he's growing up. And of course, Sheldon is a super genius as a kid. Like he's skipping all kinds of grades. He's, he's a wizard. He's super smart. Uh, but there's this one episode where um, his mom is really struggling and that worries him. And it's because there's a young girl in his mom's church congregation who died in an accident, and she's having a really hard time understanding what's going on. So I just want you to watch this short clip where Sheldon has a conversation with his mom about it. Can I sit with you? I think mommy needs to be alone right now. All right. Mom, I'm scared. Why? You didn't go to church. You stopped saying grace. I don't understand what's going on. It's kind of hard to explain. Is it me? Did I do something wrong? Of course not. Come here. Sheldon. Faith means believing in something you can't know for sure is real. And right now, I am struggling with that. So you don't believe in God anymore? That isn't something for you to worry about. I need to figure this out myself. Can I help? Maybe I could provide a fresh perspective. I don't think so, baby. Did you know that if gravity were slightly more powerful, the universe would collapse into a ball? I did not. Also, if gravity were slightly less powerful, the universe would fly apart and there'd be no stars or planets. Where are you going with this, Sheldon? It's just that gravity is precisely as strong as it needs to be. And if the ratio of the electromagnetic force to the strong force wasn't 1%, life wouldn't exist. What are the odds that would happen all by itself? Why are you trying to convince me to believe in God? You don't believe in God. I don't, but the precision of the universe at least makes it logical to conclude there's a creator. <sighs> Baby, I appreciate what you're trying to do. But logic is here. And my problem is here. Well, there are five billion people on this planet and you're the perfect mom for me. What are the odds of that? <sighs> Thank you, Lord, for this little boy. I knew I could fix it. <laughs> Maybe it was you and the Lord. So even though Sheldon doesn't believe in God, he makes a logical case for God. And my guess is if Job was a modern day story, God probably wouldn't ask us, have you seen the storehouses of snow? Because we're like, well, God, there's a precipitation cycle. There's not literal storehouses in heaven. We know how that works. He'd probably say, um, you know, something more like that. He'd probably say, hey, throw something up in the air. Notice how it comes down? 
Do you realize if, if gravity was a little stronger, you would be crushed, and if it was a little weaker, you'd just fly off and nothing would work? And that's a little bit of what God is trying to show to Job. The world and creation is all designed by God to work together in such a particular way. And Job does not understand how all of these things work, or how they work together, or how they all play out. But part of the chorus of Job is to trust God. It's to trust Him that He knows how these things work together in a way that you and I do not understand. And sometimes that answer works, but sometimes, especially maybe when you're suffering, it's hard to just be told, well, you just need to trust God more. Like, well, I'm, I'm trying my best, but I, I don't know how long do I have to wait? How patient do I have to be? When is this going to end? And so that's why there's, there's other themes and other ideas that God is weaving together in this chorus when he talks with Job. So God begins to go on as he describes the universe and the stars and the earth and then specific animals. And he talks about these two creatures called Behemoth and Leviathan. And what in the world are those? So um, I'm going to give you the really exciting, interesting interpretation, followed by the much less exciting interpretation. All right, you ready? So the exciting interpretation of what the behemoth and the Leviathan might be are they're either dinosaurs that we haven't found yet or they've gone extinct, or they're these mythical creatures we, don't, we haven't quite seen yet, like, you know, like the Loch Ness Monster. You've seen the grainy photos of someone looking at it like going, that must be the Loch Ness Monster. Like, is it? I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a bad picture and it's late at night. Is it a rock? I mean, what is it? Maybe that's what these things are. They're these creatures that we, you know, because everyone's got these stories of these, these animals that no one seems to find. And I mean, and lots of ancient uh, folklore have stories about dragons. Maybe these are like dragons and we just haven't found them yet or found enough proof of them yet. So that's the really exciting, interesting to think, oh man, these crazy creatures are out there somewhere. Maybe there's like some sea monster at the bottom of the ocean we haven't found, and that's the Leviathan. So that's the exciting one. Okay, you ready for the less exciting one? Here you go. The less exciting is the behemoth is a hippopotamus, and the Leviathan is a crocodile. And you're like, oh, that's it? See, it's a little bit different for us because these animals would have lived in the part of the world that Job was in, and believe it or not, hippos are dangerous. They can outrun you. They are fast. And crocodiles, if they get you in the water, game over. I mean, if you've ever been to Florida, you know the rule. If you cannot see to the bottom of the body of water, do not get in it. Because there's probably a crocodile. And if you get in the water, they're aggressive. They're not scared of you. They'll hunt you. They don't care. And I know that's not exactly as exciting. Because, I mean, you can go to the zoo and you can see hippos. And they don't look that impressive. Like, yeah, they're big, but they're just lazy. They're just kind of laying out there in the sun or whatever. You can, you know, watch them in their pen. You can go to see the crocodiles. And, you know, they don't seem as scary when they're either way off in a little pit somewhere. There's a nice thick glass barricade between you and them. And it just kind of seems like, really? That's it? But these are two creatures, whatever they are, that God uses to describe just how powerful of a creator he is. Because the point's not so much to focus on who these animals are or what they are. It's to focus on that if God can create such mighty creatures based on how he describes them, then how much more powerful is God? Because God is saying, hey, I created these two animals. And he tells Job, you, you, couldn't, you could not catch the Leviathan if you tried. So what makes you think you can control me? God is saying, I'm so powerful because look at the pets I've made on the earth. 
and these are mighty. And so he's saying, Job, you couldn't, you couldn't control a behemoth or a leviathan even if you tried. So why are you trying to tell me who I am? You can't do that, Job. Back in chapter 38, verse 31, God asked Job this question. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? So I want to show you a picture of these stars. Uh, this first one is just a little map of the constellation of Orion. And so there's, you know, kind of low in the sky, there's these three stars that to us look like they're next to each other. They're actually very far apart. That's Orion's belt. And some of those stars around them are the Pleiades, or the seven stars, seven sisters, the Greek myth tells of them. So this next picture is just the Pleiades and what they look like. And in Job's context, stars were these spiritual beings. And if they moved, that determined fate. So you could kind of read the stars and get a bad or a good omen. So in Job's context, God is saying, hey, if you really wanted to like move those stars to create good or bad luck for you, you can't, Job. You can't do it. Now, we have learned from the great scientist Pumbaa in The Lion King that stars are actually not fireflies stuck in the sky. They are stars of burning gas billions of miles away. And in fact, the closest star in Orion's belt is 690 light years from Earth. So again, a light year is how far light can travel in a full year, which is a lot. So even if we had to move one of those three stars and we put our best minds on it and put a bunch of funding behind it, how long do you think it would take for us to find a way to move one of those stars? I wonder if we would ever be able to figure out a way to move an actual star. But if God just gives a word, that star would move across the universe. And that's part of Job's, what Job has to learn here, is that God is so much greater than us. He's beyond us. And that's actually good news. That's a good thing. Because the fact that God is greater than you means he can do things you can never do. And he can think of options and solutions that will never cross your mind. He understands things in a way that you and I will never understand. And that's good. Because if he's for us, not against us, he knows what to do. He knows when to do it. He knows exactly how to do it. And so it's good to trust him. And it's good to know that he's greater than us more powerful. He knows far more than us. And here's a third piece of that chorus, a third theme, which is if you wrestle with God, especially in suffering, you will find him. You'll find him, or he'll find you. You see, Job throughout the whole book complains and pleads and wishes that God would come and talk to him, but he sort of assumes that will never happen, like he's God. God. Who is God? Job's kind of like, who am I for God to come down from the heavens and talk to me? Like, God's too busy. Like, he kind of knows this is never really going to happen, but then it does happen. I don't think Job expected that. I think it's just kind of interesting that when God shows up, he doesn't, like, interject throughout. He kind of waits to the end when everyone has said all the things they know to say, and then God shows up. He says, hey, let, let me set the record straight here. I just think that's interesting. And so sometimes we have to wait. There's, there's a lot of patience involved. There's, there's a, quite a bit of searching and wrestling and questioning and persevering. But then you will, if you're looking for God, you will eventually find him. Or he will come and find you and tell you what's going on. Dr. Tom Hall is a theologian and a psychologist who studies spiritual transformation. And he discovered that there are three spiritual activities that we can prove with data 
that they cause you to spiritually grow and be transformed. He can prove this in a lab. He can set it up. Here are the three activities that he has proven will help you spiritually grow. The first one is forms of contemplative prayer. So contemplative prayer, a lot of us learn intercessory prayer, which is, you know, dear God, please, you know, help this person. They're not doing well. They're feeling sick. You know, that kind of prayer. Contemplative prayer is a quiet prayer where you sort of just meditate on something about God. You kind of sit with an idea of God or a story in the Bible or a characteristic of God, and you just sort of pour over it, think about it, turn it different directions. It's a very slow, quiet, sort of restful. You're contemplating who God is. It's that kind of prayer. The second thing is deep, long-term friendships. Think of like the three to five people that you literally can tell them anything. Like you don't pretend when you're around them. You don't sort of like, well, I don't want them to know I had a bad day at work, or I don't want them to know I did this thing. Like you just tell them. Like they know you. They know everything about you. It's those people. And number three, suffering. And maybe you'd sign up for the first two. Like we could practically, like we could teach you how to do contemplative prayer. You could go home and do that, you know, right after church. Um, deep long-term friendships, some of you have those, some of you, you need to work on those a little bit, but you could get those. But suffering is the one, like nobody wants to sign up for that one. Like when you get off the suffering ride, you don't want to go, hey, let's go get back on that. That was actually pretty cool. No thanks. Even if you reach a point where you go, you know, I'm, I'm glad that happened. I'm glad I grew through that, but I never want to do that again. But suffering is one of the three things that we know helps you spiritually grow and be transformed into the image of Christ. And, so, and that's, I think, part of the reason why, because when you suffer, God's going to work things in you and through you, but you're going to find him. You're either going to find him in a deeper way than you never had before, or he will find you in a place you've never been before. And you will come out on the other side with a very different kind of relationship with God. Now, here's the last sort of theme that makes this up. Is throughout the book, Job and his friends, they talk about God sort of like he's a subject. Like, they kind of put him under the microscope and act like, well, here's our box. We know how God works because this is how we know the world works. And now we're just kind of kind of analyze him and, and argue about him and debate him. And they go through this for the whole book. And, you know, it was logical, it made sense, it kind of, you know, their view of the world that, well, if you're good, God will make good things happen. If you're bad, God will make bad things happen. And that sort of made sense. And throughout the book of Job, in Hebrew, they, they call Job, or excuse me, they call God Elohim or El Shaddai. And, you know, those are names for God, but they're a little more general names. Like, you could call any God those names. So it's not necessarily clear that Job's friends are talking about the Lord, the God of Israel. It's not clear that that's the guy they're talking about. They're sort of talking a general idea. But when we get to the end of Job, the book begins to call God Yahweh, especially when he begins to speak. It doesn't say Elohim spoke. It doesn't say El Shaddai. It says Yahweh spoke. So this is the God of the Bible who is talking to them. And so one of the really important themes to understand is God is not a what, but he is a who. God is not this idea or this subject you can put under the microscope and study. He's a person that you can have a relationship with. And because these other themes come together, because he's so much bigger than us, you cannot fit God under your microscope. You cannot stuff him in your box. You cannot create nice little neat rules and God will just fit inside of them. He's far bigger. 
than all of the things we try to do to contain him. And that is such a good thing, because then that means that God can actually come to Job and talk to him, and tell him the truth, and set the record straight, and he can change things like he will in the last chapter that we'll talk about next week. And so sometimes we even have to shift our thinking that he's not just a subject that we kind of talk about or talk around, he is a person that you talk with. He's a person that you get to know. And he's there to help you and strengthen you. So here's one of the questions, one of maybe the most painful questions that God asked Job. In chapter 40, he says to Job, would you discredit my justice? In other words, Job, are you, are you saying that I'm not a just God? Are you trying to say that I don't handle the world appropriately? It's a pretty serious complaint. And so a little, just a couple verses later, God says, okay, Job, if you're so just, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where you stand, Job, if that's, if that's how you want it to be. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And here's the irony of this passage. One, if Job were to really do this, he'd probably be so busy crushing the wicked that he would ignore all the good people. But another part of it is, if Job were to do this, he would have to crush himself. Because Job is not innocent. Now yeah, the story tells us that Job's a good person. He, he follows God well, but it doesn't say that Job is perfect. And so if Job... And so if Job were to try and make this all happen, he himself would have to put himself under this punishment. Because God says, hey, he's, he does things that I say, but Job has not totally his whole life been a perfect guy. And so now he can't save himself. He recognizes this. He doesn't have a way to save himself. And so God says, okay, Job, go ahead. Punish people. And Job has to say, I can't. I have absolutely no way to do that, God. And so instead, Job kind of falls into our category, because like us, we are incapable of punishing all the wicked in the world. As much as we would love to try, we just can't do it. And if you or I wanted to bring true justice, there's a level where we'd have to include ourselves, because we're not perfect. We're not sinless. But that's where God comes in, because if we can trust God, and if he's more powerful than us, and if he understands how the world works and operates and fits together, then that means that there is actually somebody else out there who can save us. And that's what God does. He can save Job, but of course, the Bible tells us about a man who comes who is perfect, who suffers even though he doesn't deserve it, who's the only perfect person, the only sinless man, and yet he suffers what we should have suffered. He's the only one who doesn't need to be humbled, the only man who doesn't need to be crushed, and he willingly allows himself to be crushed and allows himself to be punished. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can save us because we can't save ourselves. And so the gospel tells us that even when the world is unjust, we're, we can't fix it. What we need is God, the one who knows and understands far more than us, the one that we can truly trust 
is the only person who can truly punish those who deserve it and reward those who deserve it. He's the only one who can cleanse us from our sin and give us eternal life. And so at the end of it all, as God begins to describe this to Job, these answers are not necessarily easy. And some of them may work for you, and some of them may work for you on certain days and not others, but when we begin to put them all together and remind ourselves of them, what we learn from God speaking to Job is that even when life is painful and chaotic, and it's hard to know how long it's going to last, it's hard to know what is God up to, we can know that God is the one who has what it takes to save us. We can't save ourselves. It's hard even for us to try to save other people. Even if we want to punish other people, it's hard for us to do that fairly, but God's the only one who can do that. And so even when our suffering and our life is painful, let that chorus play on. Let the voice of God coming out of the storm talk to you and remind you of who he is, remind you of what he can do that none of us can. Because you and I need the God who can tell one star in the sky to move. Because that's the God who can save us. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you. I thank you so much that you are beyond our ways. And even though sometimes that answer for us maybe not, may not be what we want to hear, that answer may not be what we're needing in that moment. We may want other kinds of answers, but God, you know what we need. And so even though it's, it's hard, God, because sometimes, yes, yes, we want to trust you, but sometimes we, we want answers. We want timetables. We want solutions. So Lord, help us to trust you even when we don't get the answers that we want or we don't get the solutions that we're after. But help us to continue to reflect and to know and be reminded of who you are and that you are a God that created the whole universe to work together in, in a particular way. And you're the God who made a way for us to be saved. And so even in the pain and the suffering of life, you have a way to help all of us out. You have a way to save us from our sin, and you have a way to help us through our pain and our suffering. And so sometimes as hard as that is just to say, to continue to trust you or to continue to lean in to you. Help us to do that. And Father, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would comfort us and strengthen us. Especially in those times and those moments when we feel like life is crushing. Help to give us the strength to stand firm and to continue to follow you. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen.